We don't often like authority. Most of us don't appreciate it. Sometimes it's authority of a parent asking us to do something that we don't want to do, and rebelliously we just say no or we don't do it. Sometimes it's the authority of a teacher, and as the teacher is, is connecting with us, we just don't like what they're doing or the way that they're going about something. Sometimes it's the authority of a boss, because we don't like to be told what to do. We want to tell others what to do or kind of live our own life freely, but we don't like to be told what to do. That goes from beyond just bosses and teachers and parents. I mean, think of government. On Friday, we received news that all of a sudden protocols had changed again and your gatherings inside for family over Christmas were only 10. That means that there's much family debate, much family banter, division for some, struggling to figure out the plans that are already made and what happens next. What do you do next? I mean... For Amy's family, that meant that today we were, we were to host her larger family gathering at our house that it got canceled um, because people weren't feeling comfortable in the middle of all of that. It meant that my parents decided to cancel our gathering on Christmas Day. And for whatever you do with that, we struggle with authority. We struggle with figuring out what it looks like that there are people in authority over us. And then you take that to a whole other level. God. God is the ultimate authority. God is the sovereign I am. There is no greater authority than God. He is the creator. He's made all things. He is the sustainer. He sustains them by his might and will, and he is God, the sovereign I am. There's no one above him. There's no one beyond him. He is simply God. And because God is God... He has the right to tell us what to believe and how to behave. His word tells us what to believe and how to behave, how to live. What should we be thinking about him, about us, what we believe, and then how we behave, how we should be living out our lives. God has that right because he's God. And at Christmas... We see even in the story of the incarnation, the rebelliousness against God's authority. The rebelliousness against God showing up. Now we live in a day when it's hard for us to understand some of this because in our day, we might have a mayor, a premier, a prime minister who has limited authority. Even in our day, we have a monarchy in England with limited authority. The queen has very little authority. But God is king. God is king. And king is something we have a hard time relating to because king is ultimate authority with no one above or beyond. So as we turn to scripture, we're going to turn to Matthew 2. And there's probably no greater misunderstood portion of the Christmas story than Matthew 2. Because so much myth has mixed with the legend and legend, sorry, and myth has mixed with the biblical account of Matthew 2 that people are actually quite confused as to what has gone on here. I want to say this at the beginning. I've, I've read some stuff by Don Carson, this, and I found his outline exceptionally helpful. I haven't used all of it, but I borrowed portions of it in here because I found it really helpful. But here are some things to think about out of the myths and legends of Matthew 2. Um, there were three kings, right? No, probably not. 
One, they weren't kings. That's never mentioned in the text anywhere. Nowhere in the text is there an indication that they were kings. That doesn't come till second century from Tertullian that there was a, a belief that they were kings. They were likely astronomers. That means they studied the stars and astrologers, which means that they believed that studying the positioning of the stars would allow them to know how the universe was going to have an effect on us. That's what the Magi were, likely both astrologers and astronomers together, marked together. You can be either or, you don't have to be both, but they were likely both. But they weren't mentioned as kings until the second century, so they weren't kings. Were there three? I don't know. The text doesn't say, it's nowhere in the text. We impose on the text that there's three, and we sing it, we three kings, but that's nowhere here. We assume there's three because of the gifts, but that's not in the text. That didn't happen until Origen in the third century. They were named in the sixth century. In the sixth century, they actually got names, and uh, all of a sudden, those names have lasted through history, but that doesn't happen until the sixth century. How sixth century later they knew their names is beyond me. And when did they visit? Well, they didn't visit the night that Jesus is born. So if your nativity shows um, the manger and the angels and the magi, you're into the heretical ground. And um, it's not really heresy. Um, but the magi are probably a year away. Right? They see the star, they come. They come to Bethlehem to a house. They call him a child. You'll see that in the text. A house, a child. So really, if you're going to have the nativity scene here, the magi should be a ways away as they're coming, and, and if you want, leave your nativity up all year, and by next Christmas, they'll be there, right? But then it's next Christmas, you're gonna, you really gotta put them back again. But by December 23rd, you can have them there and then push them back. Um, so what does the Bible say? Listen to this, the word of God, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, they asked him where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler, he will be shepherd Sorry, who will shepherd my people Israel? I want you to note this. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And he fulfills the prophecies of scripture. So Jesus, it says in verse 1, he's born in Bethlehem, in Judea. This is the time of the reign of King Herod. Now, I believe this is Herod the Great. This is complicated for a moment. Herod the Great was born in about 70 B.C., 70 to 73 B.C., somewhere in that range. And Herod became king under the Roman rule. He's the king of the Jews. He becomes king in about 40 B.C., maybe 37 to 40 B.C. So here we have Herod, who's reigning and ruling at this time. Herod dies somewhere between 4 B.C. and 1 B.C., right? Because Jesus likely was not born on 0 A.D. or 0 C.E. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. I would like to put Herod's death at 1 CE. That's where I think Herod likely died. I have a variety of reasons for that. I'm not going to get into them right now. But I think Herod died at about 1 CE, which will put the birth of Jesus at 2 or 3 CE. That's right, or, or, or yeah, before, before the year of our Lord. That's when I think Christ was born. And so you have, you have Herod there, BC, sorry, 1 BC, 
is when I think Herod died. 3 BC is when I think Jesus was born. Um, he wasn't before he was born, before he was born. It was not like he was born three years before he was born, but that's when it should have started. And, and so what happens here is Herod is king. Now, Herod was a great king. He was loyal to Rome, but he was king of the Jews. He was the mark. He could do whatever he wanted. And he was an incredible strategist. He was a brilliant architect. He'd rebuilt the temple. Everybody loved Herod except when he was angry. Nobody liked Herod when he was angry because he was, he was irreconcilably frustrated when he was angry and would do things that did not make sense. Just kill large groups of people at random. He didn't want Herod angry, ever. And so these magi come and they say, where is the one who's been king of the Jews? They come to Jerusalem. Why? It's the capital. They don't know he's been born in Bethlehem. So they follow the star. The star disappears. We'll find that later in the text. But it leads them to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem and, and because they've gotten that far and they're like, okay, we assume the king would be born here because this is where the capital of Israel is. They get there and they go to Herod and they say, where's the king born? King of the Jews. And Herod thinks he's the king of the Jews. So now there's a problem. Because Herod would like his kids to take over from him. He doesn't want someone else's kids to do it. But he knows. I mean, this is how much Herod wants to be in power. This is how much Herod wants to be in control. He says what? To his chief priest and teacher of the law. Tell me where the Messiah was to be born. He believes that this child that's born is the Messiah. The promised one. The one who's going to look after Israel. The one who's going to free them. The one that God has promised. And Herod wants him dead. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Herod wants the Messiah dead. Now I want you to know, it says here, that the, the kings in verse 2, not the kings, sorry, the magi, that when they came to, 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 to see the one born king of the Jews, that they've come to worship him. Now, I don't think this actually means worship in the way we understand worship. You've got to be careful not to impose your Christian sense of worship on it. These are pagans. As far as we know, these are men who have not been converted, at least not at this point in the text. And when they come to say we've come to worship him, it's likely more like this. Even in our culture today, if you're addressing the mayor, if you're at City Hall for meetings, I go every so often. I know for most of you it's not very exciting. I actually really like it. Most people sitting around me like, why am I here? This is the most boring thing I've ever been at. If you go to City Hall or you go to uh, Parliament at Queens Hill or you go to uh, Parliament at, uh, uh, in Ottawa, what do they address our premier, our mayor, or our prime minister as? Our worship. Our worship. I hate that address, because only God is our worship. But, but it's addressed, they're addressed as our worship. And so when a king is born, you're coming to pay that king homage, to pay that king worship. And that's what they're doing here. They don't believe this is the son of God, at least not yet. They're coming to worship the way that any pagan in their day would worship a king that's been born. That's what they've come to do. So Herod finds out that they've been born, he's been born in Bethlehem in, in Judah from Micah 5. And he knows that this Messiah is a threat to his line. And so he has plans to kill him, but he needs to find out where he is first. So the world feels threatened by Jesus. Verse 7. When Herod, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. 
he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I can go and worship him. But Herod feels threatened. He wants them to tell where Jesus is so that he can eliminate the threat of Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. This happens all through Jesus' life. Satan wants to eliminate the threat of Jesus in the wilderness. The Jews hear him claiming to be deity, one with the Father. They pick up stones to stone him, but the Father allows him to slip away quietly. But they want to eliminate the threat of Jesus. Eventually, they do. They say that what he has said is blasphemy. They hang him on a cross to kill him because they want to eliminate the threat. The world feels threatened by Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us. What's gone on in Parliament in the last few weeks tells us how much the world feels threatened by Jesus. It should not catch us off guard. It should not surprise us. The world is threatened by Jesus. You can read now. University professors, what do they talk about when they talk about Christianity? They say it's unethical. They say our morals are unethical. Unethical. That's what they say. You've probably heard it talked about from C.S. Lewis from years ago in Tolkien that Jesus is either Lord or lunatic or liar. They now say he's lunatic. I mean, when I started ministry 27 years ago, that wasn't the case. If you go back in our culture to the 50s, though most of the culture wasn't Christian, they still had a deep respect for the word of God, the Bible. That started to disappear. It was gone by the time I started ministry. And though they had little regard for scripture, they still had great regard for Jesus. People would say all the time, well, he was a great moral teacher. They don't say that anymore. This great deep respect for Jesus, it's gone. They now talk about the evil of Christianity. You can read this. And what's mainline right now being taught in universities, eventually, it affects the entire of society. What's being taught in universities today is typically within a decade mainstream in our culture and society. That's what happens. But it shouldn't catch us off guard. It happened in his day. In fact, after they crucified Jesus, what happens after the resurrection? The disciples, after the day of Pentecost, begin to preach the gospel everywhere, and now they're, they're in next in line to be executed. In fact, as far as we know, all of them died horrific, horrific deaths, except John, who was likely on the island of Patmos where he was isolated. And so the world feels threatened by Jesus, so much so that we talk about the universe being able to self-create not needing a prime mover. It could just show up on its own because we don't want someone to tell us what to do. We don't like authority. We want to be the ultimate authority. We don't want anyone in charge of us. Well, God will use unusual means to fulfill his plans. Throughout Scripture, there are typically four periods of extended unusual plans from God. The one is the Exodus. Go to the Exodus, and you just see God intervening in incredible ways through to the promised land. The next period is a shortened period in the time of the kings with Elijah and Elisha and not much else through the kings. You then flip to the prophets. Again, a very short portion of the prophets with Daniel and Ezekiel, but none mentioned, let's say, in Isaiah or Jeremiah. Then the ministry of Jesus again and then the inauguration of the church. And, and you see these times where God chooses to show up in unusual ways. The truth is, of that is in the incarnation when Jesus is born. So verse nine, after they heard the king, they went on their way. They star, uh, and the star they had seen 
when it rose, went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So the idea here is the star was there. They get to Jerusalem. They think they're where they're supposed to be. The star is gone. And now the star is back again. And they follow the star. The star is now over Bethlehem. And they follow the star to Bethlehem. Now, it wasn't like this. No, the text is not indicating this. Star magi, and they're just following it. The star appeared. They saw it. They came. The star wasn't like this moving object, right? And when the star is over the house, and, and they, they come to the house, it's not like when they see the star and they're overjoyed, they know where it goes because they come to the house. It's not saying that the star hovered over the house with this light shining on the house like you see depicted sometimes in, in children's stuff around, around the Magi showing up. That's not what's here in the text. They likely went to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a small town. There was probably only a dozen to 15 or so children that would have been born during that time. That would have been the right age of Jesus. And so they see the star. They follow till they get. They may have had to talk to two or three homes so they got the right place. They finally get to the right place and they discover Mary and Jesus and Joseph. The text here says Mary and Jesus, but Joseph was around because he's around in, in a few minutes. So they followed the star and the star was there. This isn't, like some people say to me today, can we still see the star? I'm like, I don't know. Like did God just raise the star for a time and then take it out of existence? Maybe. I mean, there's all kinds of theories. You can read volumes of what the star was, where the star came from, where it may have gone. Is it still there? I'm like, no one knows. This is ridiculous banter and a waste of my reading time. Um, I mean, at, at points, it's a little fun, right? Because you read someone's theory and you're like, really? You published that? Like, I respect you and that. Anyway, there's all kinds of theories on the star, right? The star is from God. It's very clear that this star is a gift from God to lead the Magi there. Why? Well, the shepherds were Jewish. Everyone so far in this encounter has been Jewish who've shown up. But not the Magi. They're Gentiles. And God wants to show in the birth of Jesus that his gospel is for more than the Jews. That this Messiah whom the Jews had hoped for, this Messiah whom the Jews has awaited, this promised one whom they had believed in, that this was more for than just the Jews. In fact, Matthew starts that in the genealogy. In the genealogy, five women are mentioned. Very important when you read through the genealogy of Jesus that you note that in the book of Matthew. Two, uh, four of them by name, one of them not by name, but five women are mentioned, Mary being the last one, two of them being non-Jewish. One of them being Rahab, the prostitute, who's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. I may not have gotten all the great rights, but you know what I'm saying. But Rahab's in the line of Jesus, who's being rescued from Jericho before the walls come down. And Ruth, the Moabitess, she's the great grandmother of King David in the line of Jesus. Because Matthew wants to illustrate, one of the reasons he's writing his gospel is to show everyone that Jesus has come for all people. He's saving from every language and culture and custom and tribe. Is that not good news? He's saving Jew and Gentile. So here the Magi are included. They show up. Well, Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they see the child with his mother, Mary. They bow down. And they worship him. They open their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They, they come to the house. He's a child. 
So a year old, 14 months, we don't know. We know Herod kills all the boys two and under, so somewhere in that range. And they bow down and they worship him. And maybe it's in this moment, like the shepherds, though they're still bewildered, that, that they have a better understanding of who he is. Maybe as they heard Herod with his advisors talk about where the Messiah would be born, that they began to dig in to what the Messiah was. They'd, they'd have had knowledge of this as these magi. They'd have known something of the Messiah. They probably didn't understand that this king was the Messiah, but maybe they began to research what it meant that the Messiah had been born. And maybe this portion where it talks about worship is more than just homage. Maybe this is true worship. Maybe they've come to a saving place. I don't, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But in the indication here that they worshiped him, it seems like a stronger indication than they just paid homage. And it seems like somewhere on this journey, in their interaction possibly with Herod and others, that they've come to the place where they've understood that this child that they have come to pay homage to is the Messiah himself. They bring treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, we know. Frankincense and oil extracted from the resins from various trees. Myrrh, a fragrance. Again, extracted from the resin. Very expensive. Very hard to come by. Costly. And they present them to him. Because Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Only him. I've had the privilege of meeting with numbers of people over the years. A few years ago, I was speaking at an event um, at a church, a large church. At the end of the service, a gentleman had come up to me. He was a scientist at the University of Toronto. And, um, and I can't remember if he was a researcher and what he taught, but in the field areas of biology, I know it wasn't physics or chemistry, and he, he began to talk to me and said, you know, I was diagnosed with a terminal illness a number of months ago, and... Um, and I want, I want you to know what God's done in my life. He said, I came to a service here, and uh, I came here at the pleading of my friends, my neighbors who know the Lord. And so I came, and I came here to debate after with the message, the, the pastor who was preaching the message, and tell him that he didn't know anything. And when I came here, at some point during the message, God's spirit just spoke to my heart, and I broke. And during that message, God saved me. Just powerfully saved me. Just worked in my life and saved me. And I have committed my life to Christ, and I'm following him ever since. He said, I never gave thought of God till that day except to prove he didn't exist. And now I worship him. We emailed for a number of months, and then I know he passed on. But until shortly before he passed on, he just talked about the great faith that God had given him in Jesus and the hope that he had in the resurrection of Christ. I think of one of our philanthropists who's journeyed alongside of our building who made tens and tens of millions of dollars as a non-believer, right? Was happy, had everything, multiple places, anywhere he wanted around the world to live, to go to, gobs of money being made, first family fell apart, you know, got married second round. And, um, and then he had a Christian friend come by him and say, we should study scripture together as they were talking about the gospel. And it was a longer journey, much longer, well over a year, that they began to dive into the Bible together and read together and pray together and discuss together. And I remember sitting with him, and he said, I remember the day when God saved me. I remember the day when God grabbed a hold of my life, when I turned from darkness to light and repented and trusted Christ as my Savior. And he said, I went to tell my wife that, and the next day God graciously saved her. And he said, he said after you know, some discipleship and growing, we decided to have a different perspective on our money. And we, we went to our accountant and said, how do we give away as much money as possible? How do we just give it all away? How do we just give all of our money away? 
And the accountant said, what? Like, like, he's like, well, Jesus has changed our lives, and, and we don't need this anymore. I mean, they need enough to live off of, but how do we begin to dissolve properties and stuff that we own and just give it all the way to kingdom? And that's what they've done. I mean, I think they've known the Lord about 20 years, and over the last 20 years, they've just given their money away because they love to worship our God, because God truly saves he actually changes lives. He actually transforms people. God loves to save. He delights in doing so. And his sovereignty preserves Jesus. Verse 12. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Why did God grant Joseph and Mary gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh so that Jesus could escape to Egypt? I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. He wouldn't have been able to work in Egypt likely, or it would have been a while. He'd been a foreigner in that land, not well received. And these expensive gifts would have allowed them to live. It was God's gracious gift because God was always going to preserve his son. God was not going to allow harm to come to him until the time had come for his life to be given up on the cross. Until the time on the cross had come so that he could give his life up for us. And so God was always going to preserve his life. God was always going to protect him. God was always going to, his father, walk with him in that way. And so here he provides gold and frankincense and myrrh to fund the trip to Egypt. To allow them to stay there and to live to grant them the ability to be sustained. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, left for Egypt. There he stayed until the death of Herod, likely not that long after. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's Hosea 11.1. 1. There's three prophecies in this short text that are fulfilled in Christ. While the world Jesus comes to is evil, so evil in fact it wants him dead. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity that were under two years of age in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah 31. As he said earlier in the text as we were going through it, that Herod was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Because they knew when Herod was upset, watch out. When Herod was upset, look out. I mean, Herod had killed one of his wives, two of his sons. There was no conspiracy about it. There was no hiding of the evidence. It was all public. Herod didn't like one of his wives, had her killed. Herod didn't like two of his sons, had them killed. I mean, there's more to the story than that, but you know what I'm saying. Because he's king. He's king and he can do whatever he wants. He's king of the Jews. Oh, he's king under Roman law, but he had a lot of freedom. He would execute large groups of people when they didn't go along with him. And here there's maybe a dozen kids in Bethlehem and he has them killed. I mean, Herod was known, was known for the ways in which he would do this. I mean, could you imagine this day? Number of soldiers show up in Bethlehem. They find any boy under two and they take the sword and kill them in front of their parents likely leaving their parents to kill up their to do clean up their children's blood and body 
That's likely what happened. That's the story of the incarnation that we put on our mantles and turn into something else. It was gruesome. And the world is evil. I mean, you think our protocols are bad? Herod could just take life when he wanted to. He could just choose to destroy when he wanted to. He could just show me what, and of course there's weeping. Imagine the weeping and wailing from parents and grandparents. Children who'd done nothing except be born. Imagine the weeping and wailing from aunts and uncles and siblings in the home. Children that had done nothing except be born. And they're murdered in front of their family members. Their life is taken in front of them. Those boys are killed. Anyone to and under. And there's weeping. Maybe on that second Christmas. Because Herod would go at any length to eliminate the possibility of the Messiah taking over. But here's the good news. Jesus is king. Is that not good news? Jesus is king. Herod knew that. This Messiah who's coming is promised to be king. I can't have that. So he would do anything he could to get rid of the Messiah, to get rid of the king. But Jesus is king. Regardless of what's going on in your life right now, regardless of the, 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 the circumstances or situations you find yourself in, Jesus is king. Is that not good news? He's not slipped off of his throne. It hasn't happened. Jesus is king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. What does he do? He's born, gloriously born. God preserves his son until just the right time. He lives a sinless life. He never sins. And at just the right time, he gives his life up for us. He chooses to die because he's not going to die when he's this young. He's not going to die at the hands of Satan in the desert. He's not going to die on a boat in a storm. He can calm the wind and the waves, but he is going to die at just the right time for our sin. He is going to have the wrath of the Father poured out on him as he becomes our sin on the cross and he is going to die then. But three days later, because he is the king, he was raised to life again. Because sin could not own him, because Satan could not defeat him, because death could not hold him down. Three days later, he's raised to life again as king of kings and lord of lords. And regardless of what is going on in our country, he is king. Regardless of what people are saying about him, he is king. Regardless of our world saying he doesn't exist and our universe can self-create, he is king. Regardless of what is said around us, the greatest celebration of Christmas, uh, at Christmas, of the most influential person who's ever lived is so because he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's God come down. He is the king. He is the king. He is the king of my life. He is the king of our country. He is the king of this world. He is the king. And one day, gloriously, he will return. Is that not good news? He will show up. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no death. Satan, sin, gone forever. Death vanquished in the lake of burning sulfur because he is the king. He is the king. And we worship him. You guys can come up to close us in song, but as you do, what's your response this Christmas? What's your response? Maybe like Herod, you're like, I don't want him to be king. I don't like the things that he says, and I don't like the way that he asked me to live. 
I don't want him to be king. That's the response of many. What can I do to eliminate Jesus? What can I do to bend what he said? What can I do to change or alter things? Instead of accepting his word as his word and believing upon him in the way he has said. And there will be people this Christmas, family members, friends that you will talk to, maybe share the gospel with, who want to be king and not Jesus. And they will defy him any way they can so that they are king and not Jesus. There will be Herods among us. But can I suggest there will also be Magi among us? There will be people who will come to see what God has done because they recognize it's from him. Jesus will speak to them. They'll turn from whatever it is they believed in to turn to him. And they'll recognize that he is king. Is that not good news? That he is king, that he is kind, that he is loving, that he is just, that he is gracious, that he is forgiving, and that he is king. And that the king is so loving that he would lay down his life for those that he would save into his kingdom because he longed to call a people from every language and custom and culture and tribe to himself. He is king. He is king. And my prayer this Christmas, if you haven't trusted Christ, that even this day you would turn to him as king. Even this day you would trust him. And as you go out, maybe inviting some people to come back Christmas Eve, maybe into family gatherings that look different than they did before, and there's all kind of debate and difficulty. Oh, in the midst of that, would you not be caught up in the debate and difficulty? Would you point your family to Jesus who is king? Would you show them him in such a way that they would turn to him either as brothers and sisters in Christ who would just celebrate that he is king, or as non-believers who for the first time would see their eyes open to the same acknowledged truth of Christ and turn to him as king and recognize that he is the glorious Savior, Christ the Lord. He is king. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king. We thank you that nothing in this universe in any way can ever take you from your throne. Not our beliefs, not our disbeliefs, not some other form of power, not some other king, because there is no king but you. We thank you that you are a benevolent king, one who rules through love and grace and forgiveness. And this Christmas, Jesus, we pray upon our hearts and the hearts of those around us that we would recognize you as king. For we pray this in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.